chapter 8. One of the most enjoyable portions of Scripture, really, because it's a series of short accounts, little short narratives, describing how Jesus trained his disciples by his example, by how he conducted ministry as he's about to set them up to go conduct ministry. Remember, we're in the portion of the Gospel of Matthew leading up to chapter 10, the long first discipleship discourse, when he sends the disciples out to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, only through Israel to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to do the works of the kingdom, heal the sick, cast out the demons, raise the dead, these things. So it's a, it's a dazzling part of history when the massive, wonderful, miraculous works of God are being done in authentication of the message of Jesus offering the kingdom to national Israel. And in this portion in Matthew chapter 8, we start to hear a little bit of the rejection of the kingdom offer. We've had foreshadowings of the world rejecting the king of Israel with Herod and the, the babies. We've, we've seen uh, that there is an opposition with Satan in the temptations in the wilderness as Jesus is being demonstrated to be the truly spotless lamb of God without, without blemish. But now we're going to go in Matthew chapter 8 to the power that Jesus has over various things. He's powerful, as we saw last time, over the defilement of leprosy. He can cure the leper, and right after giving the Sermon on the Mount about righteousness inside out, he isn't defiled when he touches a leper. The leper's cleansed. God isn't defiled by dealing with our sin. Our sin is dealt with. Our sin is put away by what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And so the leper is a picture of the fact that what should be defiling under the law for God is not a problem. Nothing will be impossible with God. He is told, the leper is told to go report to the Pharisee, or sorry, to the, to the, um, to the priest and give the offering that Moses required because Jesus is offering the kingdom to Israel. And the way you do that is the leaders who know the scriptures are supposed to see the Messiah that has been promised from Genesis through Malachi. They're supposed to see him when he shows up. And when the last Old Testament prophet that came in the New Testament, John the Baptist says, he's the one, he's the one. And he's fulfilling the Malachi role of Elijah that comes to for, as the forerunner to announce the Messiah, the nation's leadership in the scriptures are supposed to know it. So Jesus says, don't go tell everyone. You go tell the, scri the, I'm sorry, the, the priests and give the offering. Then you have the Gentile encounter that Matthew in, 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 in weaves into these little short stories where a centurion comes, a Roman company commander comes and says, I have a servant who's sick. And Jesus, in teaching his disciples, remember last time, he, he looks to those that are following and says, I haven't seen this, such faith in all of Israel. This Gentile understands when he says, you don't have to come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. You can just say the word and my servant will be healed. He said, I understand because I'm a man under authority too. You are delegated in authority. I'm delegated authority. I say do and it's done because of the authority that's delegated to me, to those under me. And you can do the same thing. So you just say it. And Jesus says, you get it. You get that I have someone over me, the father who sent me on this mission and his power delegated to me allows me to do it, to say it and it's done. And so this is what he marvels at. And so you have the dazzling teaching of the disciples that, um, that you listen to the words Jesus says so you know where he's coming from. You don't just watch his miraculous works. When Jesus says, I'm doing the works of my father, when he says, I didn't, I, I'm not saying things that, that um, testify to me, my father testifies to me. When he says, I got my message from my father in heaven, when he says in John 14 that the Holy Spirit, uh, John 16, won't speak of himself, but that which he hears from the father, he'll say. That, that's, th this is from God the Father, this whole thing. And so the centurion gets it, and the disciples don't. The, Israel doesn't understand this yet. And so Jesus heals him. It's a big deal through verse 13. In John, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 8, we have Jesus serving in Capernaum in Peter's home when Peter's mother-in-law is ill, and Jesus heals her. And so far, in these miracles that Jesus has conducted, as John is setting us up for the discipleship discourse with opposition, with opposition from Israel and the nations, it'll turn out. As, we, as we're getting set up for this, um, we're not seeing opposition yet. We haven't seen opposition to the miracle. And then we have the, the couple of people that come to Jesus in John, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 8, verse uh, 18, about the, uh, I'll follow you wherever you're going because he wants to go where that is. And Jesus says, it's not where I'm going. I don't have a place to lay my head. You're, you're worried about what, going to a better house, better situation? 
He says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. See, he's, he's looking at the motivations of people because he can do that. And he's saying, you better figure this out. It's not about where I'm going. It's about who you're with. And who you're with is the destination. And you're after something that you think I can get you. But what I'm really offering is that you can have me. And that's a great place to, to, to rest on. And then another of the disciples, one of those people following and studying what Jesus is saying, saying, he's my preceptor. I'm studying under his instruction. He said, let me bury my father. And Jesus said, no, there's no higher priority than following me. Let the dead bury their own dead. And that's a very challenging thing. And I want to say, when Jesus trains the disciples in Matthew, talking to people under the law in national Israel before he came and died for our sins and rose for the dead and gave us the Holy Spirit, in the time in which Jesus was ministering, where the gospel mission was the gospel of the kingdom offered to Israel, national Israel, go only to Israel, he's going to say, in this time, when you hear the instruction Jesus has for the disciples, there is a ton of applicability to us if we want to be the students of our Savior. If we want to be followers of Jesus Christ, listen, the priority he establishes for the man that wants to bury his father, he says there's no higher priority. There's nothing more than me. If you've got something that holds you from following me, then you need to get rid of that thing. You need to let that go. And it is not a contradiction on honor your father and mother. It's a contradiction on idolizing something that's a good thing honoring your parents, when you should be worshiping God alone. That's the, that's the trade-off in what I'm calling the sword principle there. And then you, we just did with the kids, we talked about the, the boat. The next thing is his power over nature. He has the right to say, you just follow me without any hesitation or reservation. And then he calms the storm. And the reason Peter, I'm sorry, the reason Matthew includes this story of the disciples in this part, these things all happen, it's all history. But the way... Matthew arranges his narrative as he's, he's leading up to that chapter 10 discourse, that chapter 10 teaching block where it's all red letters. And you should definitely read it and then get confused by it and concerned and embarrassed and, and, and mortified and then, and then pray about it and then put it, put it aside for a minute and then you should read again the next day and keep working on what Jesus does in Matthew 10, which we're headed to. But this is all training. This is all setting them up to understand what it is to be his disciple. And we come to the, the Gerasene demoniac, as he's called, the, the, the man possessed with a demon from Gerasa. Let me pull up my little presentation here and see if I can't show you what I'm going to say to you. Oh, we just did all that. Okay. The nap in the boat. That's probably my favorite story in Matthew 8. And now we close Matthew 8 with the demoniac at the Gadarenes. The Gadarenes, Matthew says, Garasa, Luke and Mark say. First, I want to tell you that um, there's a concern people have. It's the same story with a little bit different details and the difference is that uh, Mark will say more detail. Luke has a, a little bit more detail about something, and Matthew might have less detail. It isn't that the stories differ. It's that there are different components that are emphasized. For example, the area that this takes place in, this little green line here, hope you can see, is when Jesus crosses uh, the Sea of Galilee with the disciples in the boat, and they come to what, um, what Matthew calls, um, let's see, uh, The Gadarenes, when this is Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, when he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes. Well, it's country, the, the region, the area. And the Decapolis, the ten city place on this side of, of Galilee, which apparently has a lot of Gentiles in it, like they have herds of, of, of pigs and stuff, this is the controlling city, one of the ten of the Decapolis called Gadara. And so the area is. It's the place over there by, by Gadar. And this is a five or six mile distance from, uh, from the Sea of Galilee over to Gadara. So Matthew calls it by the region. And you can, when you read it in Mark or Luke, he says the Gerasenes are, and there's an argument over the, the different ways to, to, to write it or pronounce it. There's a little village still called a similar name, the archaeologists have found, that is uh, where Jesus got off the boat and met the, the demoniac from the tombs. There's some tombs over here and a slope that would um, abruptly fall like a cliff where the pigs go down into the water. Um, it's called 
on this map, this is the Lagos uh, Bible Places map. It's called Gergesa. And uh, G-R-G-S, these uh, consonants keep showing up in various forms for this little village here. And, um, and so, in, in other words, the little town is what Mark and Luke call the general region governed by Gadara is what Matthew calls. There's no, there's no debate. There's no debate between Matthew and Mark and Luke. It's the same place. That's what I'm trying to show you. And I thought that was pretty neat to see that. When they came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. Um, those of you who are visiting, we are super thrilled that you're here with us today. I just want you to know, when the Bible talks about it, we talk about it. And sometimes I pick topical studies to discuss, um, maybe launching off of some of the Bible mentions. Uh, but we don't talk about demon possession very regularly here at Preston City Bible Church. And the reason is because of the biblical emphasis on the topic. I looked up all the references to demons using the word demonion or demon in, um, in the New Testament. That's the word for demon. And also the, this verb here that is being translated word demon possessed, demonizomai. Uh, Diamonizomai. These words are, I think it's less than 80 times that you run across this concept. And remember, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about this a lot. And so the overwhelming majority of references to demons in the New Testament is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's not to say that it is not problem or that we're not dealing with it. It's to say that the biblical teaching on the topic is in the gospels in Jesus' earthly ministry offering the kingdom to Israel. It's important to understand that. So like, for example, turn in your Bible to the place that teaches us how to do exorcisms. There's no instruction. It's also interesting that this is not an Old Testament doctrine very much. There is very little in the Old Testament, which is the majority of scripture. Let me turn to my Old Testament the majority of your Bible doesn't address this very much. The one place that it's explicit that there's a problem that we're, we're saying, whoa, there's stuff going on that we don't understand is Genesis 6. Genesis 6, the sons of God took the daughters of men and saw they were beautiful and, and took them as wives. This infiltration of fallen angels is where uh, the Old Testament really talks about this the most. And I'm not overgeneralizing to say it's really not a major biblical topic. And here's why you need to know that. Because for some Christians, it's the major topic. And that's why people that want to focus on demonology and demonism want to talk about the Nephilim in Genesis 6. It's the thing. And there's a lot of interesting YouTubery about this. But I'd say get back to the Bible. Just get back to the Bible. You can't see this. There's so much of it you don't know. There's a whole realm of invisible that God hasn't revealed to us. And he's shown us a few things. Like there's this problem of demonism, of demonization, as the Greek says. Demon possessed is demonized. These people have demons resident in them, indwelt by these unclean spirits, the Bible will also call them. And so what I want to say about this topic is let's desensationalize something that is certainly supernatural. It is certainly beyond our understanding. It's certainly a great danger and a cause for, uh, for us to rest in God amid the pressures and the trials and the storms of this life. There is a satanic conspiracy called the prince of the power of the air where he wants to deceive all the nations. But listen, it's not a mystery what his message is. His message is in Genesis chapter three and it is an accusation that God is not good and loving toward his creatures. It is an accusation about God's character and we have already defeated it by just looking at the cross of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. So what I wanna say, let the Bible focus our attention on what is focal by its by its preponderance of what it describes. It talks more about, what I'm trying to say is it talks more about loving God and loving people than it talks about demons uh, by um, an order of magnitude at least. And so the way you will defeat the efforts of Satan and the demons will be to do the things that God wants you to do toward him and toward others. And be absolutely certain that if there is an enemy of God with an, with an array of fallen angels, which I believe are the demons, who are opposing us in the invisibles where we can't see and the, and the guardian angels are fighting them. And we read about a little bit about that in Daniel with, uh, with, with Gabriel and, and we have Michael and we have, we have a few, just two named angels, Gabriel and Michael. 
If, if you look at what the Bible actually teaches, of course they're arrayed against us loving God and loving one another as Christ has commanded us and walking by the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit and building, as we read in 1 Corinthians 3 last hour, that which, is, which God is building, the body of Christ. Of course, the war that rages in the invisible realm is opposed to the things that God has us doing. But the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And the, and the, the power of the Holy Spirit is infinite God power. It's omnipotence. And you have demons and Satan arrayed against the omnipotent God. You don't need to morbidly fixate on the question of the demons. And in fact, as we read, if, if you want to talk about what, what we're supposed to do about them, you're not supposed to revile angelic majesties. They exist. And, um, and you're supposed to keep your eyes looking away unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. I truly believe, based on the story of Elisha and his servant, the Lord, he prays that the servant's eyes will be open and he'll be able to see the invisible battle. And he sees the chariots of fire of God's angels in battle array, arrayed around uh, Elisha. And he says, there are more with us than with him. If we could see the battle, we would be, uh, we would be shell-shocked. We'd be PTSD all the time, I think. That's the nature of our weak construction, our constitution. And I really think we're that. I once went to New Orleans with my parents when I was a little kid. I had never seen a horse with blinders on, but a horse-drawn carriage riding in the streets of New Orleans is definitely something that needs blinders. He doesn't let you see all the craziness of what's going on in pandemonium, demons everywhere. He's got you fixated on what he reveals. And I just want to say, let that be enough. Now, um, one of the things, while we're talking about demons, I just give me my summary little, little cutout blurb on demonism and, and demons. The New Testament language is demon. And, uh, and there's a historical context, there's a cultural context in which the New Testament is written where demons are part of Greek thought. And, and, and they're deities, they're, they're spiritual beings um, with power and there's various legends and myths about them. And I don't doubt that the enemy of God and his minions are feeding those ideas for sure. Paul says that, you, um, that the, the Gentiles sacrifice to demons and their rituals, and their, and their religious observances. It's a real problem. But here's the interesting thing that's in the debate on spiritual warfare with, with Bible students, Hebrew scholars that dig into this, and, and, and we need to dig into the scriptures. The, the New Testament does not explicitly identify the demons Jesus is dealing with with the fallen angels of Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, you have this image Revelation is very image-based. It's very uh, allegorically instructing, I should say allegorically by having images with, with literal references behind them. And there's this dragon image, and it's, the, it's Satan and the devil and the, and the serpent of old, Revelation says, the book of Revelation chapter 12. And, and it says his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven. And that is a very oblique reference. And we look up at the sky and we're like, are a third of the stars missing? What, what does this mean? And as you watch the scriptures, sometimes the angels, the creatures, the super creatures that God made uh, that are not humans, they're not born, they're created beings, are also identified as stars. They're called stars. And that doesn't mean that they're the, the astral bodies out in space. It doesn't mean that they're the same thing. I think it means that they're beings of light. It means that they're glorious, they're beautiful, and they're otherworldly. And the, and the, there's just hints. I'm just talking about all the hints, and people like to focus on the hint stuff. In the tabernacle, in the middle space, in the holy place, before you got to the most holy place, there are cherubim woven into the fabric all in that space because they're otherworldly. They're, they're in, they belong in another arena than just earth. And there's more going on than what you and I see. And the cherubim are the angels, the angelic beings that cover the throne of God. And so what I'm trying to, to express to you is the New Testament does not say demons are fallen angels from Revelation 12, but I believe they are. There's another view out there that it'd be remiss if I don't mention it because I can watch YouTube too. The, the idea is that what happened to the hybrid people in Genesis 6 when the flood killed them, when the, the mighty men of old died, what happened to them? And the theory is that they are disembodied spirits and they're, they're looking for a host 
And so that those are the demons, the spirits of the Nephilim. It's an interesting suggestion, and it might be true. The Bible doesn't say that it is. But I believe that what we're fighting is an angelic war where Satan, the super creature, the, the captain of the enemy forces of these created beings that he swept away a third of the stars of heaven, um, in his rebellion against God, these beings, these unclean spirits, are the, the ones, the persons that we're dealing with in uh, Matthew 8. Now, the Bible, again, it doesn't say that that identification is right, but I believe that it is. And so I want to be very clear with you on that. I know some of you don't like when I do that. You're like, just say what it is. And I, I really think you need to have good epistemology. When you know something from what God's word says, you need to say, I know it. And when you don't know it, don't say you do because you feel like it. Oh, I really feel. But I grew up with uh, demons as the fallen angels, and I think that's right. And I do not know what to do about the Nephilim and their spirits and uh, those things. But I have a theory, and uh, maybe I'll share that with you some other time. Just, a, just, as an ins- just, just for a thought about how we don't know that much. You've got these guys, these demons headed to the abyss, these they are called daimonion, these super creatures going down to the abyss. Just have you read the description of this, of this army of locusts that have the heads of men and the teeth of lions in the book of Revelation? And they have these scorpion tails and they come and sting people and they're sick for five months, but they can't die. And, it's, and they come out of the abyss. And that is... One of these little indicators, just like in uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10, when it describes the cherubs, what? <laughs> read Ezekiel 1. There are things that we are not going to understand until we see it. But the things that we can understand are evident here in the story. And I, th- I think we put our finger back in the Bible. And, it, and one, of the, one of the philosophy ministry, philosophy things of this church, we really want to say what God says and agree with him. We want to believe what he says and go with his word. And the thing you need to know about these demoniacs is not whether these are the fallen angels or the spirits of the Nephilim or something. What you need to know is that there's a war on and Jesus is more powerful than these spiritual beings. So he says, and he's, he's very powerful. So when he came to the other side, two men were demonized. Daimonizomai is the word. Sometimes this word, like in Matthew 11, they say, you have a demon to Jesus. You have a demon, as in you are indwelt by one. And the word echo, to have, is your stock word for having something. I have, um, I have my Bible. And they say, you have a demon. So that would be the demon is possessed by you. But um, this word demon possessed in your English Bible is always translating the word demon turned into a verb, demonized. In fact, it's daimonizomai, demonized. That's what it is, demonized. And it does mean that there's indwelling. The demon is inside the person. It's in the, the demon is in, that spiritual being is inside that person's body. Did you know your body was designed to house spiritual life? It was designed that this physical body would hold your immortal spiritual life. That's how it works. You've got the, the two components. You have the immaterial and the material, you. That's the, that's, this body holds it. It is not that you're supposed to have another spiritual being in there except God, the Holy Spirit. And again, I told you last time, I believe that the sealing ministry of the Spirit means that you believers in Christ sealed into the day of redemption will not be demonized. You will not be possessed by demons, but you might be influenced by them, especially if you pay attention to mainstream media. I didn't say, I, I, I don't mean news. I mean all of it. So they were extru- they, these men that, that came out of the tombs, uh, the, the two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. Only Matthew identifies that there were two demon-possessed men. Mark and Luke only identify one. But if you have two, then you have one. And if you have one person that you're describing who has legion in him and you don't talk about the other guy, it doesn't mean he wasn't there. And so I don't think that's a problem to me. Pardon me, that's not a problem. I, I know that one. That's not a problem. Okay. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. I'm going to read with you the part in Mark that talks about this, the Markin passage. He's way more detailed. They're tearing off shackles. They're breaking chains. You know, they're, they're, uh, these guys are monsters. This is as close, really, in the Bible as you get to kind of like a horror movie. Um, these monsters. Notice M- Matthew's not interested in a lot of detail here. Mark, who gives you the shortest gospel, gives a lot of detail. 
They cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? It actually says, what to you and to me is the Greek idiom. And this is kind of like what, what Jesus says to Mary in uh, the, the miracle in Cana when he says, what do I have to do with you? Gune, woman, which means polite in that culture. And it's not polite in our culture. Don't call your mother woman. Um, but Jesus did. Well, Jesus was in that culture. It was okay. What do you have? What, what do we have to do with one another? And I want to show you something. The demons have business. This, is, this stuff is demon business. That's a good translation. The word business doesn't occur. There's no Greek word translating business. But it's a good thought. This is a good summary. This is, this is about demon business. And the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of insight into demon business. But what do we have to do with one another? Why are we having uh, an encounter is what they're requesting. And they're, they're, they're query. And notice what the demons say. Have you come here to torment us before the time? The kairos, the appointed time. Have you come here to torment, to, to, to torment us before the appointed time when we know there's coming torment? Apparently, they've been briefed on God's plan, and they're reading out of God's plan, which I think Satan thinks he's going to defeat. They're reading, this isn't the time that you've stated. Is, is this it? This is not it. So there's a couple of thoughts. The spiritual beings, as Matthew narrates, that's, that know things we don't know in the invisible realms, they know exactly who they're talking to. They call him the son of God. He's not walking around shining in, uh, in the transfiguration like, like he will in Matthew 17. And the humans don't see him as Jesus. They have to have a, a prophet of God, John the Baptist, say, that's him, that's the one. And they're like, how do you know? Well, God told me, that's, that's how I know. But, but the demons look at him and they say, that's the one. They know who he is. Um, I wonder what they saw. I wonder how they know. And it's a good question. It's a good question to kind of think about. That if you and I saw the invisible things, the way the, the creatures that inhabit that realm see things, we would see things very, very differently. And it tells you something else. The game that Satan is playing where he deceives the nations, it's for us and our limitations. If we could see things like, uh, like um, Elisha's servant, if God would remove the blinders, uh, we would see things very differently. I think we would be distracted uh, in a different way. In verse 30, now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. Isn't that an interesting tidbit in the story? As I narrate the story, you could just, this is Hebrew storytelling at its best. What you do is you imagine where you point the camera as you're telling the story. And so he's pointing your mind. You're looking over from this scene between Jesus, this average looking guy in Israel, and these demons, demon possessed people that the demons are speaking through them. And you switch your perspective over a little bit to beyond and you zoom out, zoom in a little bit further over the hill and there's this herd of pigs. And so that's what the, that's what the screenplay does. Watch this when you read Bible stories. Oh, please pull all your Bibles out and read the stories, the narratives in the Bible. It does this all the time where there's like this little aside, this little cutaway. In uh, literature, they call it foreshadowing. You're supposed to see the herd of swine and the demon. So our eyes sift over in our minds to the herd of swine and then the demons speak about that. The demons began to entreat him, entreat him. Subject to the verb to ask is daimonion, the demons. Now it's humans speaking, Understand, but it's the demons actually speaking through them. That's scary. That's invasion of the body snatchers kind of stuff. The demons began to entreat him saying, if you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. The if is considered by most Greek scholars to be a sense. They know it's a foregone conclusion that Jesus is going to cast them out. That's what he's doing. And in Matthew, the way Matthew's writing this up, he's already cast out demons. That's what he's here to do. The kingdom's here. There's no demonism in the kingdom. There's no presence of Satan or the fallen angels corrupting the perfect rule of Christ and his coming kingdom. And so they got to go. You're out. You're, I'm going to liberate these people from this oppression, this satanic oppression. And that small instance of one person being delivered from demon oppression from a, an indwelling, let's zoom out to the satanic conspiracy to deceive all the nations with God's enemy, Satan, and his system of demons and their communication, which has everybody foxed into believing God isn't good and loving. That's going away. That thing is really, and by the way, Don Quixote, uh, you and I are going to go vote. That's a, that's a literary reference. You're going to go vote. 
You're going to go vote, but make sure that you're not tilting at windmills. Make sure that you don't think that it's the Democrats or the Republicans that we're dealing with. I mean, in the election it is, but that's not our problem. We're about to, we're looking at the seeds of, of potentially devastating famine and disease in this country if this becomes a civil war as the governors align for or against the open border. But just my little uh, illustration from the time we live in, did you see the map of, uh, of the governors in favor of open borders versus the governors in favor of, of, uh, of, of managing our border? That looks like a, a scary map. It looks like an encircled uh, minority. But, but the point is, um, we're not worried about these temporal concerns. It's a diabolical, a satanic attack on the absolute truth of God loves you. God made you because he wants you and he wants a relationship with you. And that lie that Satan plants in the hearts of men that he doesn't, that it's not true, that he's not good and loving and holy, he doesn't want good things for you, that lie that's going away. That's going away. And we're going to, this world is going to be liberated from that. And that's what real government's going to look like. It's going to be fantastic. And we're not going to have it until Jesus establishes it. So continue to vote, please. But keep your hopes fixated entirely on the Lord. So he said to them, go. So they had a pr- proposition. They said, Lord, or they said, they said, son of God, let us go into the pigs. And Jesus said, Go. Go into the pigs. And they came out and they went in. And that's in the Greek. They came out and went into the swine. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. And that is a very interesting little hint verse about what's going on in the invisible realms. One commentator notes that, that in uh, the cosmology of the time, you've got to be careful about adopting the cosmology of the time because it's largely pagan-influenced or conjectural, and it's not biblical. But there's a theory that some have held that there are three entrances into um, the abode of uh, the final uh, destiny of the demons or the fallen angels into the abyss. There are three entrances. One is the desert, one is the, the sea, and, um, well, I forgot the other one. And, um, and so... Don't let us go about in the desert. There's another place in Matthew 12 where Jesus describes when you cast demons out, they go about into the dry places looking for some place to, to inhabit. They don't want to be disembodied. I mean, we know that. They don't want to be spirits without bodies. That's why the Nephilim argument gained some traction because it seems like, well, they're disembodied spirits. They need a body. But, um, but I think that the swine instance is... A consequence. It's very clearly presented, and I put it on the screen like this. I wanted you to see. It's very clearly, uh, this is my offer. Okay, I'll take it, but then there's a consequence to the choice that you make. Cast us out, and we don't have any place to go. Let us go into the pigs. I don't think the pigs can handle that. I think there's something. I don't think Jesus forces the pigs to run off the cliff. It's not that. It's that this is a disruption, and it is a consequence, and it also is thematic that these demons end up in the water, and it is at least emblematic of where they're going to end up. They're going to end up in the abyss until the, the time for their judgment of the lake of fire. And so, um, and I, again, I'm talking about things the Bible hints at. It hints at these things. So they want to go into the pigs, but they're going into the water. And that is fascinating. And I have to leave it there. I don't want to conjecture beyond what the text says, and Matthew doesn't spend much more time here either. It's very tantalizing. The Bible says it. I believe it. But that's what happened. And where did the spirits go? I don't know. Well, what, the, what did the guardian angels do as they were watching? The, the, those, those book of Hebrews angels that are rendering service to those who inherit eternal life. I don't know. What about the other four or five orders of beings God hasn't told us about? No. There's a lot that I don't know. I'm, I'm happy to tell you, this is great, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. I don't know. The Bible doesn't know. And you know who else doesn't know? Anybody. Jesus, God, God knows. It's really helpful to know this. Oh, well, I know so-and-so on their podcast. They know. They don't know. They, they don't know. The Bible doesn't tell them. So where did they get it? Pastor Dave is going to be like that with people. Where'd you get it? Where'd you get it? Where'd you get that? Did you get that from God's revelation? Have you put it together better from looking at the word? Or are you going beyond the Bible to speculation and conjecture? And I'd rather we didn't. So that's mine.
That's my blessing to you. Get with what God says because Matthew's point is not all the questions we could ask about the demons and their, their makeup. or It's not about that. It's really about the people's response to Jesus' work. Now, your kid was so demon-possessed that he was violent and outcast living in tombs. We know that from Matthew. We know a lot more from Mark, as we'll see. Your kid, your neighbor, your, uh, your buddy on the football team from years ago when you used to play football together, he has fallen on hard times, and he is demon-possessed and in the tombs. He's living where the dead people are rotting, literally. And he's crazy, and he's violent, and nobody can even go see them. I haven't seen my kid in five years kind of stuff. What, if that's your person, your village, do you do when a man comes and says, out? And the man, your kid is restored, your kid is healed, your kid is delivered from that oppression. This is what the world does with Jesus saving us. What happens next? The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the, those, possessed, those who were demonized, those possessed by demons, the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. That's good. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Now, there's lots of reasons why you could imagine they would have a problem. Just imagine the town hall. The town hall meeting, all the different problems are being brought up. There's one, there's one grandma back there saying, he saved my grandson. But everybody else is saying, our pigs, thousands of pigs, he did that. And other people are saying, you can't have somebody with this kind of power running around. He's, he destroyed half of our industry for the village. And he's got all this power. We, we can't have this power. Whatever the reason, they missed it. They missed the point that Jesus has power to deliver. And if he's got power to deliver against the demons, he can handle your problem of your sudden economic misfortune. But they, they don't get that. They, don't, they haven't read Matthew 6. We have. We're in Matthew 8. They're worried about uh, their subsistence, and they're not worried about the things that God values. In Mark chapter 5, you want to turn there, we want to blow through these real quick. Mark, Mark 5, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. Remember, that they, they named after the area where the tombs were, where Jesus actually had this encounter, which is part of the Gadarenes. Mark's, in, Mark's description is very interesting. When Jesus got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Notice demon in Matthew is called unclean spirit in Mark. That's the kind of stuff you have to do to pull this together. And he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. That's some interesting detail. Remember the shortest gospel, the gospel written to the Roman readership by Mark, John Mark. This gospel doesn't tell as much, but when it gets into something, it'll give you more detail about it. It's very interesting that way. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and shackles broken in pieces, and no one is strong enough to subdue him. This is a very damn, before this was a guy that was kind of violent, you couldn't pass by. Now we're like, oh, uh, he is a public health risk to your physical life, because he will kill you. He can break your, break your head with, without trying because he's supernaturally powerful. Again, I told you it's a horror story. This is, I mean, the, the, the Hollywood tries to d depict this and it's sensational and we get fixated on this. But what you're supposed to see is this man is completely co-opted to the point that he has supernatural strength from the demons. Constantly night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Now, why is he doing that? Why do the pigs run off the cliff? Apparently, this isn't a desirable experience. Are the demons forcing him to gash himself with stones because they hate him? That's one possible interpretation. The demons hate the humans, and so they, they cause him to hurt himself. There's another interpretation that's possible. It's possible that he can't stand it. He's oppressed. He's tortured by this demonization. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Now that's a little different summary the way Mark reports it. I implore you by God, do not torment me. Did you know the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write every word that he wrote? And the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write every word that he wrote. And so you're getting this in stereo, as one writer called it. For Jesus had said to him, 
Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? Jesus was saying to the demon, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And so get the picture. One guy's mouth is moving, right? He is speaking. That's the subject of that verb. He is speaking singular uh, verb. But inside, it's we. And so sometimes this will be portrayed by the cessationalists as, uh, as in some sort of multi, multi-voice harmony sound because there are many in here. Legion, I think, is 6,000. I think it's 6,000 Roman soldiers, something like that. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of demons. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Don't send me away. Another hint, like, why don't you want to go? Why don't, why don't, the demon, why don't they want to go out of the country? They want to stay there. Interesting. Now, he was, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The camera cuts over. And the demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine. We may enter them. Word implored might be an interesting question if the demons are asking Jesus for stuff. The word is parakaleo. It just means to make a, a, a request. It means to, uh, in Paul's language, it's one of the key words for ministry. To request or implore is fine. And Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. The herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. About 2,000 of them, see, Mark gives you more detail, 2,000 of these pigs. And they were drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen ran away and reported to the city. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed. Now, Mark brings you in to the experience of the villagers and makes the same point Matthew makes, but in more detail. They looked at this demon-possessed man sitting down, clothed in his right mind, and the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. So they're afraid because this man they were afraid of is now fine. He's just sitting there having a meal. Those who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man all about the swine. So the herdsmen, this is like, almost like the shepherds that uh, little John was, was re- reminding us of in Luke 2. These are the shepherds of the pigs, the herdsmen. The bosco is the word for the feeders of the pigs. They're uh, retelling the story too, and they have a miraculous story to tell. And they began to ask him to leave. This is how the world does. When God shows up to deliver us from the evil one, we ask him to go. And that's that's the abiding presentation that the Lord is giving us through his apostles. In Luke chapter 8, you want to flip flip over to Luke 8, and we can make the the whole meal. I'm not going to do this with much of Matthew because I believe in taking the story in its own context, but I'm doing this one because I want you to see that um, the, the story is consistently having the same message, the same punch, and um, what we worry about with the demons and the invisible stuff is really not the point of the story. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes opposite Galilee, and when they came out onto the land, he was met, Jesus was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons who had not put on any clothing for a long time. More, more detail. Now, the physician notices that the patient is naked. He was lit, not living in a house, but in the tombs. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. Now, there's more detail here. He was gashing himself with stones in Mark 5. Now, in Luke 8... He is bound, he had, uh, he, it, this demon had seized him many times. So it's like a violent uh, torment that the demon's doing to him. Notice he said, don't torment me, Jesus. And now the, the demon has been tormenting this man. He was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. Yeah, he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So the man is driven to run into the desert. When they, they chain him up over by probably food and water, but then he breaks his bonds and runs out to the desert where they're afraid he's going to die of exposure. Jesus said to, the de- said to the man, said to him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Okay, don't put us in the water. Don't send us away to our ultimate doom until the, the final judgment. Don't send us into the abyss. There was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. So same kind of story. It's the same story in three-part harmony. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank, bank, bank into the lake, and, was, and, and the herd was drowned. And notice that it's in all three tellings, it's like in one verse, one kind of sentence, 
the demons went into the swine, and the swine ran into the water and drowned. It was very terse, very fast. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it to the city and out in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported it to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. Luke brings out, as the doctor in the story, Luke's a physician, he tells that the patient is okay. They've all examined him. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. This story connects in Matthew 8 to the one before it with the boat scene. It connects because the disciples are afraid too. As we read the rest of the Gospels, we see they're afraid. There's a consistency that people are afraid of various things. In this case, they're afraid of the power that Jesus has. Now, they were managing this demon-possessed person with his violence and his self-destruction. They were managing it, but they couldn't help him. They were trying. Obviously, people had tried. Many blacksmiths had, had apparently, or much blacksmith work had been done to help get this guy shackled up and chained up to not be a hindrance to himself. Humans can only do so much. But when someone with the power to really help comes, the people are afraid of the power instead of embracing the one who wields it. It's a very interesting take for you believers in Christ on evangelism. You're offering someone eternal life. It's the real solution to the real problem. And the real power is not that you're going to get raised from the physical death before the resurrection. That's not probably going to happen. In a few cases, Lazarus, a few others. Talitha Kum, little girl, Jesus raised from the dead. But for the most part, no, we're going to die, and then the resurrection. That's the real power. That's the real healing. That's the real miracle. And what you're saying when you share the gospel with someone is a record, is a testimony to this power. One of Paul's great prayers is that in Ephesians chapter 1, that the, our, the eyes of our hearts will be open to know the power of God toward us who believe. It's fearful to know that someone is there with the power of heaven and hell, of life and death, eternal separation from him in the lake of fire. And Jesus says, don't fear man who can destroy your body, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This is, this is the topic. Now, when I talk to someone about the gospel, I have to confess to you, I'm not thinking in terms of the power question. I don't think about it. But it is, the, it's, you're telling someone that you have in these words the answer to every problem and every need the person could ever have. The question for significance, one of the most difficult questions. What do I do with my life? Why are we here? What about the bad things? The gospel answers all of those questions. I understand from reading this, it's a moment of fear. Because like the Gerasene demoniac, or the Gadarene demoniac, however you want to call him, we'll pick up sides and play kickball for the two teams, Gadarenes versus Gerasenes. Um, we're, we're that guy. We had a miraculous work done to us where we were saved by grace through faith. We didn't have a demon in us, maybe. I, I don't know if any of you were ever demon-possessed. Um, I wasn't. Uh, some people, you, some of you might have been, but if you're a believer in Christ, you are not. But see, you had a sentence of eternal death on you. And there was nothing that could be done about that except the power of the gospel and the resurrection. And the resurrection, the ultimate demonstration of our Savior's mighty power and his Father's power toward him, this is the gospel. How does the world receive that message? What do they do with this offer of the mighty power of God? They ask him to leave. What Jesus did when they asked him to leave, it's the saddest words in the gospel of Matthew. He got in his boat and they left. God isn't going to force the issue with people. But now you know something more perhaps about what the issue is. When you re represent Jesus with the gospel, are you ready to talk about his power? That he saved you? Are you ready to think of it in those terms that part of why you have something to share is called the fear of the Lord? Do you have that attitude toward God as you approach someone else to represent your heavenly father? Has Jesus as the day star risen in your heart so that you really understand something of who it is that we're talking about? The reason we don't share him 
was because we're not, we're not setting him apart as Lord in our hearts. We're not thinking of it as we should. I want to be at that event, that one person that saw what happened and said, everybody, he, he's the only answer. I want to be like the garrison who, who, when delivered, asked Jesus, can I come with you? No, you stay here and continue to testify to what was done for you because they haven't received the revelation of my power and the offer of the kingdom. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we dedicate these moments to bring honor and glory to you with gratitude for your word. The challenge of this story, Father, is, uh, goes beyond our ability to understand. But we can imagine what is being described here. We could see what, what humans could understand and observe from the story. What was going on in the spiritual realms is beyond our grasp, and we thank you for that. We know that you have a plan, and it includes that we are in the dark about some things. Thank you for that blessed darkness. We don't have to be worried about these things. We are focused on you, on your son, on your plan for us, on your word, on your spirit's work in our lives, on bearing the fruit of the spirit as we consider your son. Thank you for that fixation. Father, help us keep focal what the Bible focuses on. The people rejected Christ because they, they were afraid in the wrong way. They didn't run to the one wielding that power to deliver the man oppressed by Satan. They pushed him away because he demonstrated the power that could defeat Satan. Father, this is going on in our time. It's obvious that this is the problem that people face. They don't want for someone else to be in charge. They don't want to be uh, subject to you or to uh, your son. And the, the whole world is trying to cast off the yoke that is so light and the burden that's so easy. Don't let it be so for us, Father. We especially want to pray for our young people. The young men, as the Apostle John calls them, who know Jesus as their Savior, but are being enticed by the world, these young boys and girls, young men and women, who have to decide right now in the phase of their lives they're in whether their spiritual lives are a matter between you and them or if it's just that they do the Christian things because their parents, for example, bring them to church. Father, help them understand that wonderful relationship which we forfeit when we neglect you, when we neglect your word or neglect talking to you when we neglect your, your purpose in our lives. Help them know that whether their parents get it right or wrong going forward, that it's their spiritual life. They need to walk with you. Father, for our loved ones that don't know Jesus as, our, as their Savior, we pray that the gospel message will ring clear from this pulpit, from all those that hear the word, that we're all able to say it, that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. That Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me that we could know that you so love us, the world, that you gave your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, just simple childlike faith in Christ, that he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. Father, let the gospel ring clear in the hearts of those around us. Help the issue be so crystal clear, like in the story of the man who was healed of this affliction, but the people that he belonged to rejected the healer. Help our loved ones come to know you, Father, through your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.